Hi there everybody and welcome back to the DCVC podcast. This is your host Akash Pat and each week I bring you angel investors, venture capitalists and operators investing and building startups in the diverse tech landscape of India. Today with me on the podcast is Sandeep Patel. He's a partner at QED Investors and he heads their funds investments into the Asian markets. Founded in 2007, QED Investors has invested in more than 120 companies including 13 unicorns and has over 1.8 billion dollars under management. Well, Sandeep himself brings a lot of extensive consumer internet experience and is a global banking and financial services industry veteran. Over the course of the last few decades, he has helped launch consumer and SME lending businesses at Flipkart as well as contributed to the company's fundraising and eventual sale to Walmart. He was also the managing director and CEO of Truecaller India where he oversaw adtech, payments, fintech, SME enterprise and developer businesses doubling their revenue and achieving net income profitability despite the pandemic. Sandeep brings extensive consumer credit experience from Capital One in the United States and the UK as well as experience serving global investors, banks, insurers at McKinsey and Company. Well, quite evidently from his own operating and recent investment experience, you can see that Sandeep brings a lot of insights and wisdom looking into the fintech industry overall across the globe. So on this episode, I sit down with him and dive deeper into some of QED's investments both in Asia as well as in India and how the fund is prepping for the second half of the year. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Sandeep. Sandeep, welcome to the DCVC podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to host you here on the show today. I'm looking forward to our conversation which will encompass everything from your operating experience to your investing experience more recently. So before we venture into all of that, I want to take a moment to welcome you and more importantly also ask you this question, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well and thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of your work Akash, so really looking forward to this conversation and it's great to be here. Very kind and on that note, I want to quickly just bring all our listeners up to speed. Now you've had a fantastic background as an operator and then you eventually went down the venture capital route i'm curious as to how this journey played out for you and what were those decisions that kind of led you to think that post your operating experience you wanted to go down and uh, become a vc yeah so it was a very organic journey akash uh, if you um, you start out with some plans and some visions about where you want to be but life has a way of taking you along right um, so i come from ujjain madhya pradesh in india uh, a small town for for folks who, who don't know um uh, went to iit bombay graduated in 2000 um and in fact the journey of coming to us was an incidental because capital one believe it or not 22 years ago 23 years ago used to recruit at, at iit campuses so that's how i got uh, that's where i heard about capital one right i was an engineer mechanical engineer at that by training um i used to like computers a lot but knew nothing about banking right um, and so capital one kind of came and so uh, one thing led to another um joined them moved to the exciting place uh, on the east coast called richmond virginia um imagine a boy from mumbai coming into richmond virginia a very exciting place fantastic nightlife uh, great things to do <laughs> to do no but i re- in all sincerity i really liked the intellectual culture that was at capital one but it was a fantastic probably the best place to run, learn about financial services right um right from how we think about customers and how we think about profitability the core aspects of balance sheet management 
risk management and collections, credit risk in particular, um, all of those things very early on in my career, I got fantastic exposure and probably learned from the best uh, in, in those five years. Uh, 2005, I moved to London. Um, that was mix of like, well, having spent five years in converging, I was really ready for something different. But I think the other part of it was, there's a very interesting challenge. Our subsidiary in UK was not doing well. And so they want they wanted a few people to move over there to try to kind of um, uh, look and get deeper into the business, right? Um, and so it was a fairly organic opportunity. And the thought was that I'll move to London for a year and then probably go back to US or move back to India. Um, I ended up liking London so much that one year became 10. Um, so I uh, did my MBA here at London Business School, uh, worked with a private equity fund, Actus Capital, uh, which used to be sort of, um, uh, it still is a growth equity fund based here that invests into Africa, India, Southeast Asia. Uh, a lot. So I looked at kind of portfolios in those countries, uh, looked at making some investments. You're talking 2007, right? So this mm-hmm. is the ancient history of that, uh, ancient, ancient history now. But that was probably the first exposure to investing, right? Right. Um, in terms of thinking about, uh, thinking about not the business strategy or the product strategy or the credit strategy, but thinking about corporate strategy and thinking about companies as an entity and uh, how you value them, why they're created, how do they create value for their shareholders? And perhaps much more importantly, how they create value for all the other stakeholders, how they create value for customers, how they create value for other ecosystem partners, and therefore in result become a lot more valuable themselves, Mm -hmm. right? Um, What I also realized was I was not ready to be an investor. There's a lot more to investing than writing, uh, with all due respect, writing extensive spreadsheets and beautiful presentations. Right. Right. Um, so I did the next best thing that I could do, which is I went and joined a consulting firm. Right. Uh, I stayed with them. And I say that with half a sincerity because consulting is, again, um, an advisory profession. But what it allowed me was to really have um, a top of the pyramid look at how companies work, because this was working with senior management boards of various uh, financial institutions and probably during the most troubled time of uh, of financial services. This was 2008 to 2015, right? Uh, so uh, we saw, I saw kind of the uh, financial crisis from first hand and all the big headlines that came out of it. Uh, we worked on most of those situations. Fantastic learning experience. Um, again, very comprehensive in terms of thinking about different aspects of running a company, mm-hmm. right? And I got to work with companies of different sizes, shapes, and forms. Um, 2015, just continuing with the journey theme, 2015, there was a sort of a personal uh, health matter. Uh, someone in my family was seriously ill, and so we decided to move down to India, um, and sort of the Flipkart role came about around that time. Uh, they had just raised a billion dollars in 2014, so they were looking for people who had wide, kind of worked abroad and had wider industry experience, let's put it that way, mm-hmm. wider industry experiences, and would help them scale up the organization. Right. So there were about, I think, 15 to 20 expats uh, that were recruited into Flipkart to head various businesses, to head various product aspects, uh, all the way going up to CPO, CTO, uh, CHRO kind of roles, right? Um, so massive sort of addition to the top talent in the company. I headed one of the business divisions, uh, which was home and furniture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fantastic change, right? I used to worry about loans and derivatives. From there on, I started worrying about bed sheets and pots and pans and furniture. Um, I used to have teams of maybe 10, 15 people 
as a consultant uh, to having teams of 100 150 people on day one right. um, and then from sort of being an advisor and sitting on the sidelines uh, to actually being responsible for not just pnl but day to day revenue numbers and growth numbers Mm-hmm. So um, it was drinking from the host pipe uh, in the most real sense you can imagine, um, quite literally. Um, good, uh, fantastic learning experience. Uh, I keep saying that, but I think more specifically, it was about how do you execute things in a very real way. Right. right? It's good to sketch things out on a piece of paper and imagine a trajectory that this um, asset, this opportunity can take. Mm-hmm. But to execute and achieve it is a very different ballgame. Agreed. Right, that was the the big takeaway there. Um, did that for a year, then 2016 onwards for the next year and a half, I was group head of strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was sort of contributing towards raising the four billion dollars that we did in 2017, um, and then working with the the uh, with the CEO and sort of my old peers, right, uh, who were still heading the traditional business to help them kind of turn around certain aspects of the business. Right, uh, so driving kind of growth bottom up, um, and for me it was fantastic because it brought together well my experience as a consultant and talking to lots of stakeholders, um, and thinking about the about Flipkart and illustrating our story from a top down perspective, mm-hmm. but also kept my hands dirty in terms of thinking about like now that I don't have the day to day PNL responsibility, how do I really help the business think more strategically and kind of improve um, over a longer time horizon, right? Uh, then briefly, I was head of business for the fintech business of Flipkart, which is this right around when Walmart transaction was happening. Right, so I was involved in that transaction, but more importantly, I was trying to build out the fintech division. This was not phone pay, but uh, it was more thinking about consumer lending, SME lending, B2B lending, insurance products to be sold on back of e-commerce. Um, did that, then became CEO and MD for Truecaller, uh, which, if you know, is kind of a your pure consumer tech app, right? Uh, but it had, I think, 110, 120 million monthly active users at that point, right? So the phenomenal opportunity to build some customer-facing uh, products there, uh, which was the really exciting part. Uh, it was a pure play tech company. At that scale, it was run with, I think, 200 people odd or so. So uh, pure play tech. Um, so very exciting opportunity. I brought in the commercial angle. So we grew the revenues from roughly $20 million when I joined. Uh, to 80, 100 million dollars by the time I left. Mm-hmm. Um, company sort of skipped around the financing and went straight for IPO. It's one of the few IPOs, tech IPOs that has actually done well mm-hmm. uh, since uh, since uh, since its launch. Um, and then then I joined QED. Um, to kind of long, very long story. But uh, the see why becoming an investor was uh, important was in some shape or form it always played into my mind since let's say 2007. Right uh, when I was at Actis, and probably even before that, I liked the aspect of thinking about businesses holistically, right? Uh, and then the kind of uh, time at uh, as a consultant, but more important time as an operator, was very helpful in piecing together what it would take to help someone build their business. Mm-hmm. Right, it's one thing to say kind of from an armchair that hey, you should increase revenues and reduce costs. Right, uh, but it's quite another thing to think about those aspects in a very practical way. Mm-hmm. What would it mean to hire, grow revenues? What is your go-to market? What is your sales strategy going to be? How yeah. do you actually hook on customers? How do you drive retention? How do you improve monetization uh, from a margin take rate uh, at a level of depth 
that an operator always has to think about. Yeah. Right. Um, and so having gathered that experience, that operatorship experience, really helps us advise people on matters, uh, matters which frankly you wouldn't be able to advise on if you have not been an operator. Mm-hmm. So that's where I think we see value from our uh, portfolio companies tell us that that's where they see value from a QED coming on board. That's where they see a value from Sandeep coming on board. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that helps companies in that that stage of growth, right? right. Um, so one part of it was that. The second part of it was, I think, the sheer innovation and new ideas that uh, you get to see, right? Every day, I probably talk to 10 people and of them, maybe four or five I've never spoken to before. Mm. right uh, so there are five fresh ideas that you get exposure to on a given day which is fantastic right uh, mm-hmm. i think it's energizing exciting uh, and much more importantly hopefully in each of those conversations you leave something behind for the uh, the founder also to find a value so i think that is a, a, gives you a personal energy like no nothing else mm-hmm. right so it's personally satisfying at some level the experience that you have collected over the last 15 to 20 years of your career is just phenomenal, right? From the operator part all the way up into investing right now, right? You've worn various hats. You've obviously been through that journey where a company was either getting acquired or in the process of getting acquired with Flipkart and all the way from going then becoming the CEO of uh, Truecaller and having to scale operations in a country like India and now managing all the investments in Asia for QED. So it's a very unique experience getting both an insight right now, as well as going and have had that uh, experience doing things on ground yourself. But before we get into some of the operating insights that you have, I'm also curious to understand that you were an investment, you were in investments back in 2007, 2008 with Actis as well. This was a very difficult time for most people in investments because we were going through the financial crisis. And Hmm. right now we're in a global recession. We are seeing a different turnaround uh, from a macroeconomic point of view. So if you were to compare the two periods that you got into investing, right? Like when you got into yeah. investing way back in uh, uh, the 07, 08 uh, financial crisis to where we are right now, how would you compare the two? And at the same time, uh, when you're looking at companies that are being built, what kind yeah. of similarities and differences do you see from the companies that were being built back about 12, 14 years ago compared to the ones that are either being built or coming out of the markets right now? Yeah, I think first things first, right? Correlation does not equate causation. So me joining investing doesn't mean a crisis comes, right? <laughs> Let's just be clear about Hey, that. Your, your word's not mine. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I have to clarify nonetheless. <laughs> right? So, um, uh, yeah, I think the so it's a very interesting concept, right? And I think uh, a wise man once said that, uh, you know, every happy family looks very similar but every unhappy family is unhappy for a very different reason. Right. So all the good times sort of look similar, but every bad episode that you go through, every friction moment of friction that you go through has a very different uh, causation to it. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so 2007, 2008, all the way to 2012, actually fixed income continued to be in turmoil for 2011, 2012 as well, um, was driven by a very different set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. I think what we are witnessing now is driven by a very different set of circumstances. We are flushed with liquidity. Uh, the uh, the spike in commodity prices is unprecedented, partly driven by what happened in Europe, but part of it was what has happened in terms of monetary policy globally uh, yeah. as well over the last few years. Um, and then the f- uh, fact is that this is not a real estate. Like uh, Fed always looks at interest rate as an instrument for controlling money supply. 
because most of US money supply is driven through the mortgages. It's mm-hmm. driven through real estate. But in this uh, crisis, what we are frankly witnessing is that the money supply is much more dispersed, which is why even after record spikes in interest rates, inflation is not under control, right? Um, and it's also coupled with the record high uh, number of jobs being uh, left open, right? You're not, you have not gone into an un- unemployment scenario, even though um, even the interest rate spikes have been quite phenomenal. So this is quite a unique crisis in that sense. Mm-hmm. Right, very different from what we experienced in 2007, 2008. Now, bringing the, all of that more to ground, I think, uh, especially from a Southeast Asia and India perspective, the 2008 moment was very different from what we are seeing now. Right, 2008 moment, the ecosystem, tech ecosystem, even the startup ecosystem, uh, even private equity ecosystem, uh, were very, very different. Right, the market mm-hmm. depth was very different. The number of investors present and the amount of uh, investment dollars they had was very different. But also on the other side, the kind of founding talent you had and the kind of companies that were started was very different, right? If you look at 2007, 2008, a lot of investment was still going into traditional industries. Uh, it was driven a lot into uh, fixed infrastructure, into co- com- corporations that were being built, right? Whereas now a large chunk of that investment is coming into tech-enabled businesses and tech-enabled opportunities. So the nature of investment is very different. Um, to be concrete, I think there are two, three main chain deltas that I find, right? And again, I'm uh, asking specifically for India and Southeast Asia because that's the market of relevance here, right? I think the talent pool that we see is very different because what has happened in the intervening 12-year period is um, the you have two, three different stereotypes of talents that have now started coming in. So you obviously have uh, a group of uh, kind of um, uh, kind of uh, people, local uh, in, Indians who kind of went abroad, studied abroad, learned the skills uh, abroad, and then came back home to start something new. Right, that was back in kind of 2007, 2008 as well, and that's now now reality as well. Right. But then there are additional sets of ta- talent that have gotten gotten added. What this 12-year period, Flipkart being one, but there have been number of Indian companies that have scaled really, really well, and then they have uh, shot out people who had a taste of what uh, wealth creation from uh, from a tech startup can be. And more importantly, witnessed firsthand what it takes to build great companies, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so those people, the one downs, two downs, three downs from Binny and Sachin Bansal and everyone else uh, who contributed to that ecosystem, that's a phenomenal set of tech talent that has come out. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're building amazing set of tech companies. So there's a second pool that has become very big. I think the third pool that has become quite big is people from traditional industries jumping into tech. Right. right? In 2008, 2000, uh, in that time frame, you would be hard pressed to find someone who had a very good white collar job, is very successful with some MNC, for them to drop everything they're doing and kind of go and try to do a, do a startup. Those examples are few and far between. But I think that also is increasingly becoming normal and not just start, not just founders coming uh, to startups, but actually managers and executives coming to startups, right? That has become a big part of phenomena. So yeah, just kind of layering that cake, right? The talent picture has become far more compelling, right? That's one big difference. The second big difference is access to opportunity has become uh, formidably bigger, 
mm-hmm. right? Uh, we like to talk about what UPI has become, become and what Aadhaar has done, what KYC has done to India. But uh, all of these things started almost 10 years ago, right? Back in 2012, 2014 is when a bunch of these initiatives got started. It took a while for the frameworks to be created, for them to be coded up and for them to get adopted, right? Mm-hmm. The Jandhan Aadhaar program also started back in 14, 15, 16 Right and a lot of uh, AA like account aggregator framework that is coming out now actually builds on build on the jam, what jam achieved. Right, so we have had like uh, especially in India we have had almost 10, 15 years of fantastic technology uh, infrastructure being built up as a public good in many most cases. Mm-hmm. Right, and that then for a founder who starts up, when did you think of Tam and Sam? Right, that just blows blows the picture up thousandfold, if not more. Mm-hmm. Right, the number of customers you can access and the uh, the opportunities, the access to their wallet that you have, is just phenomenal. That did, did not exist 10, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. I think that's the second big difference. I think the third big difference is aspiration. Right, um, it sort of marries the first two points, but I think it's quite phenomenal that. Um, you know, the, uh, what, 30, 40 unicorns got created in India in last year. Yeah. When I joined uh, Flipkart back in 2015, everyone was thrilled that there's a company now in India that has done a billion dollar fundraise, right? Those things didn't happen in Indian ecosystem. Right. And the exit uh, to Walmart, but a bunch of other kind of IPOs that have happened last year, really has anchored two things. It has anchored the expectations of what founders aspire to, but has also anchored the expectations that venture capitalists like myself in this role uh, aspire aspire for our companies, right? Exit certainly is a very different picture now, right? Yeah. And that then fuels a lot of investment and a lot of inflow of talent, right? So that aspiration aspect, right? Even though it feels soft, is actually one, a very big driving force when we think of the current crisis and how what what would what would be the shape of things to come. These are fantastic insights. And uh, one thing I'm also curious to understand right now is QED stance, right? Like it's been such an interesting market that for a long time was there, there was liquidity in the market that basically meant that there's also capital that's being reflushed into the ecosystem. And then mm. underwriting became much easier from a VC point of view. But today, mm. every investor in the country or in Asia, rest of the world as well, uh, is is looking at the market and really putting metrics in 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 first place more than anything else. Vanity is no longer uh, enough for you to uh, go out and raise money. Your people are taking a hard look at business models. People are looking at market. People are really putting some hard uh, strict uh, lines before we can actually start looking at companies for investments. So as the market matures, and I'm calling this. A coming of age for Indian VC and Asian VC as well, because I, I believe this is probably the first time that Indian VC is going through uh, a bus cycle. We have not seen this kind of bus cycle, wherein the West has probably seen the 2000, the financial crisis and the, the pandemic and the after effects of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, while the other markets have gone through, this is the first time that India is going through uh, something on these lines. So Curious to hear your perspective from an investment point of view. Has that changed anything on your end? Um, mm. And have you guys taken a much more conservative approach as many others do? Or have you gone with that Warren Buffett kind of an approach wherein you feel that 
the market right now is is bad therefore it's a great time for us to invest oh so very good question um, there are lots of different aspects to pull up on there um, see i think uh, so we how have we changed let me just pick the central theme and then that will connect uh, all the dots how we have we changed our investment uh, approach over last 2 3 years right so qd started out as a uh, uh the, the so the three co-founders of qd right they had the saying that uh, we are operators masquerading as investors mm-hmm. and that really did gets the ethos of qd right right most folks at qd uh, like myself were i have 20 years of operating experience before i became a venture capitalist and most uh, partners uh, certainly uh, but most of the investment investment team in the, at qd would have significant operating experience before we became investors mm-hmm. and that colors how we look at investments right uh, so specifically when uh, when i'm looking for for uh, for at new companies i would look at their unit economics as the first uh, filter mm-hmm. right uh, and the reason why unit economics is very important is in financial services your capital is your raw material right so you can actually burn an infinite amount of it and still have nothing to show for it mm-hmm. right um, taking flip card right in e-commerce if you burn capital you at least will have customers for it you'll have some transactions for it and you'll therefore be able to sustain the business at least from a repeat perspective at some level mm-hmm. right but not so right if you have 100 dollars to lend you lend all of it those people never come back to pay you have nothing mm-hmm. you're finished right you as if you unique you never started Yeah. so financial services really can burn through an infinite amount of capital and therefore unit economics is the first lens we apply right right that is this business really profitable can it generate value for its customers enough that the customers pay you more than what your economic cost for running this business is mm-hmm. right um the second filter then we look for is exponential scaling kind of being able to scale businesses uh, uh at a ge- geometric scale um, after after you approve the unit economics mm-hmm. right um and then we look for kind of the aspects of talent that we look at which i won't go into in uh, depth now but going back to your question you know so we have always run the fund like that uh, when i say we i say we very broadly but nigel frank uh, caribou when they started then when bill joined and so on so forth so if you look at the history of the fund we have actually been conservative if you will but we always had this lens where unit economics is very important then came scaling and uh, talent was an equally important uh, aspect of uh, looking looking for investments so in some ways we have always been on this side of the spectrum and decision making all throughout our history mm-hmm. and what 2012 has allowed us is allowed us more room to kind of get back into the comfort zone that we were in mm-hmm. right the the not adverse i should say but the different circumstances for us was what happened in 2021 20 and 2020 mm-hmm. right when the markets were booming how do you do because our approach one requires a lot of proof points up front Mm-hmm. and it's a slow decision making framework right um so how we had adapted then was to accelerate the framework right what we d- uh, did differently was we focused more on getting into great companies because we knew valuations would be out of whack so it was not to say that we would strike deals at uh, crazy valuations i think yeah. we have been quite sensible at the companies we went after even in that scenario but where we really focused on was to make sure that we get into the right companies because mm-hmm. in times of exponential growth things can catch on but what you can't catch on are great companies right what you can't catch on to is improving economics unit economics after the fact or upgrading mm-hmm. talent after the fact mm-hmm. right 
So we adapted to the circumstances, I would say, sort of 2021, 20, 22. And now we are kind of more returning back to our base, returning back to our roots in terms of the types of investments we, we are making. Um, and so how we are reacting to the circumstances now versus how things were last year is also a reflection of that, right? Like when I'm looking for companies now, I'm still focused on finding great founders and great companies, right? I'm not really waiting for the market to bottom out. I'm not waiting for liquidity to completely flush out so I get the best deals. That's really not the nature of this business, right? In private markets, valuation is a very important thing to focus on, but it is not the determinant by any, any stretch, right? If you're in public markets, especially with a trader mindset, then you have to trade in and out a lot. Mm -hmm. And that time, the, the value at which you bought and the value at which you sold is really what drives profitability. Mm -hmm. Here, you're counting on the company to go 5x, 10x, 15x, 20x, right? So getting the starting point wrong by 10%, 20% will mess up your excess. But if you mm -hmm. look at it from a quantum return perspective, it's important, but it's not the, the thing that will make, uh, make or break the case. What will make or break your case is if the company is capable of doing a 10x or 20x or 100x. Mm -hmm. Right, so getting the right company is far, far more important than uh, just thinking about valuation and being focused on valuation. Mm -hmm. Right now, if you are a startup founder and you came to me to discuss today, don't think that I will not negotiate on price with you. I will, mm -hmm. right? Everyone will. But where we focus most of our energies, where are the big differences. One of the things that you mentioned in that answer was that um, you know you're looking for companies that can really scale, mm. but for companies to be really scaling, you also need founders that can that have the ability to like look at the market both from a short term point of view as well as keeping that long term vision in mind. Mm. How important does team become in your perspective during the diligence process or even just getting to know a company process before you can actually write that check? And yeah. how do you then continue to sustain that relationship with these uh, founders for you to continue to add value? Because one of the things that um, I often hear a lot of VCs say is, hey, we bring a lot of value to the table and we continue to add value to the table. When you go to the other side and you speak to the founders, you realize that there is a little bit of a gap in that communication. They don't really feel that there's been massive value that's been added. Although capital is one of the things that is a lot of value, but founders today are looking for beyond capital um, for them to really bring VCs onto their cap table. Now, having said that as the context for this question, um, I'm curious to understand what role do you play um, while also evaluating founders and their vision for the companies and how easy or difficult it is to, um, in today's market, to really analyze a founder and their personalities that can really then match with the company itself? Because we've talked about, uh, it's a long, long question, but one of the things that I want to point out before I let you answer is that today, what is really important, at least from my perspective and how we look at things is that there needs to be a a founder company fit? Like, is this founder fit for the company that he or she is building rather than a founder market fit? Like we spoke about founder market fit for a long time, but is this person even the right person to be leading this company? How are all these um, things evaluated at QED and how do you look at it personally? Yeah, it's a great question uh, or a great set of questions together. Um, see, look, I think first things first, um, we have one of the few VC funds uh, that actually does an NPS survey on our founders. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we do it every year uh, to, and it's an anonymous survey um, so to really understand if you are really adding value or if you are a great source of capital, right? right? Uh, and nothing wrong in being a great source of capital, but exactly. at least if you, if you think our proposition is capital plus 
plus, then there should be substance to that. And so far, the NPS surveys always come back and say that we do add great amount of value. We almost always get uh, asked to join boards. We almost always get asked for advice. Mm-hmm. Founders would reach out to us separately to set up strategy sessions and deep dive sessions um, to, to go deeper on certain aspects. And then in many cases, kind of even work with them very closely on specific problem statements if those problem statements are seeming to be difficult. Right. Um, and I think the reason for that is not just because we are VCs, but because we have significant operatorship experience. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you're a founder who's thinking of um, how do I scale my business, then a bunch of us have scaled businesses. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, if you are thinking about like, hey, how do I manage balance sheet? Right. Um, and I, I don't want to take company specific examples, but one of our founding uh, companies was actually thinking of their partnership with one bank. And that was obviously an Achilles heel for the company. So how do we think about expanding bank partnerships? And then we actually went deep with them to help them think about what are different aspects. They had done a lot of thinking by themselves before, but really sitting in their thinking uh, that, hey, if you're building a lending business, this is one of the core tenants of it. Mm -hmm. And therefore, what are the kinds and characteristics of lenders that you should partner with? And why is that, why those are the right choices? was actually a fairly deep and involved uh, discussion for us. So value addition is not just about kind of sitting in board meetings and saying yes and no. I think value addition from QED is more about if I was an operator, this is what I would do. Mm-hmm. If I have seen comparable situations in my own personal experience, this is what I did. But also looking at the uh, 12 other partners at QED, what are the things they have gone through mm-hmm. and therefore what we can learn from those experiences. So that's really what we are bringing to to the table. Um, To expand the the lens, right? Uh, To expand the lens, I think um, when when we are evaluating deals, right? So I talked about unit economics. I talked about being able to scale exponentially. But the third most important aspect, uh, and those are the top three, not necessarily in that sequence, uh, but third, uh, the kind of the the, the top three important factor there is talent, right? Um, And so, Talent in India is kind of a very interesting uh, conversation, right? Because uh, for fintech in particular, India is quite gifted as a geography, right? We talked about, uh, before we started uh, this, we talked about like how tech development, uh, tech talent development in India has been phenomenal. And I really trace it back to last 50 years, right? Right when the tech services company started and how they became world beating formidable organizations, uh, really benefiting from .com capitalizing on that. And that then has kind of fueled into product tech talent, um, eventually fueled people to kind of go abroad, learn product tech from uh, from kind of world beating companies built out of Valley and uh, across the world and bring bring that thinking back to India. So I think there's a fair bit of deep appreciation of how tech talent has come about in India. What we don't talk much about is the how the financial services talent has come about in India. Right, India has had a very long history of maintaining largely impartial financial services companies, largely impartial banks. They're not owned by by families. They're run for the uh, for the economy in general, mm-hmm. right? And that has created this cadre of bankers who are not only quite successful in their own geography, but who have gone across the world, right? So if you go to any bank in the Middle East, you go to any bank in Southeast Asia. Here, if you come to London and go to Canary Wharf, you go to New York, a large percentage of the middle management, senior management executives will be of Indian origin, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not just because STEM skills are very strong in India in the education system, but also because 
banking and financial services as a profession are very well regarded, right? Um, and so there's a phenomenal amount of financial services talent of Indian origin sitting in India and globally, mm-hmm. right? So the talent story in India is very strong because fintech sort of brings the technology talent and the financial services talent together, right? So when we are evaluating startups, we are thinking about, hey, is this the right team to be building this company for this market? Right, that's really the exam question. So there are different ways in that question can get answered. Either the founders have phenomenal industry experience, right? Some of our portfolio companies are testament to that, where the founders have really spent decade, decade and a half uh, looking at the sector, working in the sector, have deep industry connects, but also have deep appreciation of the problems that they would encounter in building a company of this nature. Right. Right. And therefore, they were fantastic fits to build this talent. There are another set of founders who are, don't have that deep experience, who are sort of not fresh out of school, but somewhere there, right? Who are really bringing in a very innovative lens, right? Uh, so they are doing more of the blue ocean strategy stuff where they observe phenomena in other industries, in consumer technology, uh, in uh, other aspects of technology, that, that, which they then want to bring to, uh, to financial services. Right. And there you are kind of they're narrating the story as an anecdote, but talking to them, um, uh, evaluating them really becomes about understanding one, their um, appetite, their desire, their ambition for impact, but also their ability to execute mm-hmm. because they'll, they're going to have to learn a lot as they go through this journey and their ability to execute is really what's going to determine their success right. in this case. Um, I think there are other types of uh, founders. Uh, when you're lucky, founders who are really on their second gig, third gig, yeah. have really done that, been there. Uh, those are founders who usually need less help. Yeah. Uh, but frankly, they appreciate who sits around their board a lot more, mm-hmm. right? Because they have interacted with uh, investors of all shape and form. Um, and then they appreciate someone sitting across the table who understands what they're really trying to build. Right. right. Um, so we get a unique advantage in the, those situations. Mm-hmm. But I think those are three, four different kind of types of talent that we appreciate. But evaluating talent is a very critical part yes. of the, the company assessment. Yeah. I'm also curious to extend this question to you regarding the landscape in India, right? Because fintech, within fintech, building consumer is really hard. Like it's much harder with, with consumer. There's a lot of marketing spend. Acquisition is really hard. Uh, and more importantly, stickiness factor becomes very questionable if the business model is pretty shaky. Curious to hear your thoughts about how are you looking at the Indian landscape? What are some of the opportunities that you're seeing which are bullish on? And what is your take on consumer versus enterprise, uh, especially within the fintech ecosystem? Because lately we have seen a lot of consumer companies coming out in India in the fintech space, which have struggled over the last few years, be it um, you know credit cards for women, be it uh, business cards for uh, for startups, none of them have really scaled to the level that some of the companies here on the in, in the West have. You can take Brex, for example. There's no equivalent of Brex, although there have been companies who are in and around that space in India. None of that is really like scaled beyond. So that's not really, again, an enterprise-focused company, but more to do with B2B. Uh, but mm. talking more from infrastructure, payments, allowing for uh, cross-border interactions and transactions. Are you more bullish on infrastructure play when it comes to fintech, given that India is still a much more nascent market? Or are you looking at consumer as well and thinking there is an opportunity? There's obviously the population numbers, all that story that gets built around uh, Indian consumer that makes it really interesting for founders and even VCs for some extent to go out and look at those spaces. Yeah, so of my five big investments in India, four are in consumer. Right. 
that's your answer right there yeah um in some ways uh, but so would you consider finance peer to be more consumer or is it more lending and b2b to c b2b yeah so, but ultimately c is what creates revenue so it is a b2c if you don't solve the b2c then the b2b yeah. is quite irrelevant in that case. jupiter is very similar when it's more of a neo bank jupiter and, one card yeah. or uh, refine are all b2c yeah um well actually maybe refine also you can put in b2b2c um, right. so maybe there are two b2cs yeah there are two b2b2c's and then upswing is b2b yeah right? but um, pure so, consumer play is hard would you would you say that or would you or do you think i different? don't think so no okay. i don't think so right i think it the answer really varies that's why i asked you about which geography you are building for right see i think there are different challenges right so in uh, in uh, geographies like india and southeast asia right and i put both of them in the same bucket uh, the reason is a lot of rails are not solved Mm-hmm. right so when you are starting up in the us you can rely on a lot of rails they may be private rails public rails what have you right but there are a lot of systems on which you can rely on right. my favorite analogy is when amazon started in the us and uh, they wanted to sell books they could rely on usps to do the deliveries right right and they could use credit cards to get payments mm-hmm. when sachin and binny started flipkart in india they had to solve cash on delivery right they couldn't accept payments otherwise Mm-hmm. and they ended up building one of the biggest logistics company in india in ecart yeah to make the deliveries happen um and the reason for it is that when you think of a company it actually is a set of value chain of activities right and in places like india and southeast asia lot of those different boxes are broken mm-hmm. so when you're building a company you have to solve for the entire chain mm-hmm. right because if you solve for the entire chain then you can deliver something that's distinctive from a user experience perspective but much more importantly is distinctive from a value creation perspective mm-hmm. it's only when you create value for your consumers do you get paid mm-hmm. so having that delta differentiation in uh, value creation is very important right so if you are doing b2c if you are just solving for one sliver of that value chain which typically happens if you are aping ideas from us into india or aping ideas from other geographies into india then that usually is not a great recipe for success there must be examples of where those things have worked but usually it's not a great recipe for success because in us other parts of the value chain are working so the user experience is still differentiated but in india if you know if i solve for railway ticket booking but not solve for all other aspects of a train journey then the journey will still be what it was right right only when the trains are better and the food delivery is better and the water delivery is better and the the track speed is solved then it will become a dramatically better experience in terms of a train journey hmm. right so solving for one particular part of value chain could create some value but the the value is infinitely more when you are hmm. uh, solving for entire value chain which is the b2c side of the story so if you have the wherewithal to solve the entire value chain then doing a full stack build in india and southeast asia is tremendously valuable it will create hmm. lots of value right in b2b the challenges are different mm-hmm. right um, again india is they like, covered spent more than a decade building out like upi and a and aadhar and all that infrastructure which is really helping fintech take off but that's not solved in southeast asia for example but in b2b the challenges are then selling to businesses mm-hmm. right um, and we have this famous adage that um, you know b2b sales is hard to achieve in emerging markets because uh, companies rarely pay right um, yeah, i joke that you know the main reason why companies don't pay for software in india is because of bill gates 
because Microsoft could be pirated, <laughs> Windows could be pirated so quick, so easily, and Office could be pirated so easily that people just got used to having software for free. Yeah. So we all grew up, and so therefore yeah. the notion of paying for software or a product is very alien to uh, uh, consumers. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So I think that's the the challenge you face. But the if you can again build the tech to solve for that uh, delta, the tech build in B two B usually takes much longer. If it's a tech solution, so when I look at the journey that Upswing is going through, and kind of Niam, but a bunch of other players uh, would have gone through in terms of really building the rails that will help uh, businesses connect with each other. Those rails are complicated. That some of the tech systems on the on your customer side might be very antiquated, and therefore might require bespoke solves. Some of those solves will break over time, so you have to keep reinventing the 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 same wheel again and again. Uh, for that application, so B2B is scalable once it's built out, but the build out is really difficult. And when you scale it up, you have to be very conscious of how you are capturing revenues because mm-hmm. your customer is not an individual. The customer is an organization where someone is incentivized to drive down their spend on you, right? right? Uh, and so, so you, you have to be able to capture value in a sustainable way. And your customer is not used to really paying for software, mm-hmm. so you have to get them into the, the that right habit. Um, I think like from QED perspective, we are bullish on both aspects of it. But the challenges a B2B presents versus a B2C uh, are um, are quite different, right? Uh, so going back to your earlier point, I think the founder company fit is quite important, right? right? Because the individual who's building a B2B business has to have a different mindset and a different set of uh, expertise, mm-hmm. um, including connectivity with his customers. Uh, which is very different from what a B2C founder needs to have. So the, this is a very interesting point because it really portrays a different uh, narrative. Like as mm. you rightly, um, you know, compared how the US market is versus the Indian market, wherein a much mm. mature market presents a much easier transactional and whole holistic value chain end-to-end uh, mm. for certain services where in India, infrastructure plays yet to be, uh, played out and you know where in consumer at least at this point is because other adjacent industries have kind of figured out consumer therefore mm. fintech consumer also kind of becomes either a plug and play solution or something that people can easily resonate and work with and work in while you're investing into both consumer and enterprise side of the the market in india what do you think would be the or how would you predict the narrative and uh, who do you think the winners will be in the next 10 years? And who do you, where do you see the best companies coming out of within the Indian fintech landscape? Mm, that's a very good question. Um, I think, look, I mean, uh, predicting future is hard. Um, and looking through, through uh, if I had that, that crystal ball, then, the, then things would be phenomenal. But... See, I think the, the the India story is very strong, right? If you mm-hmm. kind of from a ten year lens, if you really brutal it down from the macro picture down into um, sort of the microeconomic picture to uh, what the technology and fintech uh, industry uh, verticals can offer, I think the picture is bright on a lot of different a lot of those dimensions, mm-hmm. right? So I think there'll be winning companies that will come across all right from a consumer point of view. The story is quite driven by the fact that we are just about crossing the $2,000 USD uh, per capita income mark, right? Mm-hmm. And what happens at that point is people's disposable income starts growing faster than mm-hmm. what their overall income is growing at because they've kind of met their basic needs. 
right um, and there should be and because india is also a very much younger demographic compared to us market so for this demographic the wealth accumulation is just starting mm-hmm. right the baby boomers of india are entering the workforce now right what the us saw after second world war in 60s and 70s and the phenomenal growth that baby boomers drove in that country you Wait, see you mean, you, i think i think you mean gen z no no they referred to as gen z because people refer to them as sort of based on when they were born etc etc right. but the amount of you know improvement in the economy or the growth in economy that baby boomers drove compared to the economy they inherited oh. right the contribution of a single generation to us economy is phenomenal mm-hmm. and i think the generation that's kind of entering workforce in india now will make that level of contribution mm-hmm. okay right? so how marketing uh, sort of holds baby boomers as this generation that really built us and has most of the accumulated wealth sitting in the country i right. think the people who are entering the workforce now will build the country up and they'll accumulate the most wealth i'm mm-hmm. um, so riding on back of that as a b2c company would be phenomenal mm-hmm. right uh, not just 10 year but i think the 20 year story 25 year story there is very very positive mm-hmm. very very positive i think on the b2b aspect the the challenges or the the opportunities right is uh, are both on the fact that uh, your customers will be riding on the b2c story right so to the extent that you can phenomenally solve for some of the underpinnings that the upcoming b2b company b2c companies would need uh, it could be a phenomenal opportunity right um, and then you couple that with the fact that people have already seen success with some of the rails like payment rails um, and so on and so forth there will be a lot of awareness and adoption of technology among businesses that really hasn't happened in last 15 20 years Mm-hmm. right so if you're trying to sell to a bank 10 years ago uh, a tech product to a bank 10 years ago the conversation and the narrative was very different from what you would hear now because now they have seen that upi can scale and qr code can be a payment uh, mechanism which is far more powerful than 10 years ago when there really was nothing like this before mm-hmm. similarly for corporations when you selling to corporations or smes in india uh, that story will be different um but i think you have to be quite thoughtful about which part of b2b and what product you are building for because this proliferation of the economic story will not be even i think mm-hmm. it will be quite uneven so you have to make sure that you you figure out the right segment to be solving for now lastly before i let you go i want to ask this question because um you sit in london and you're investing in in asian markets how mm-hmm. easy or difficult it is for you to do so by not being on ground and having that uh you know first hand experience of meeting with these founders i know we've all moved into this hybrid virtual world mm. um or forced to do so because of the pandemic mm. but we do have investors who still give a lot of importance like meeting um founders and building that relationship along with them do you mm. see that or has that been a challenge for you personally or do you still view this as a new opportunity to to do things differently as things were done previously um no i think see the there are challenges and opportunities in it right um i sit in london because it's a fantastic time zone for me i can right. talk to companies in my first half of my day yeah and then uh, in the second half of the day i can well finish my work but off but also speak to our partners in the us and so mm-hmm. therefore things things move faster for us in that in that sense that's right? so a convenience uh, that has driven and to be honest personal preference to be in london right having spent right. 12 years in the city there's some aspects of the city life that are just like right so so there's a personal aspect right? but going to the going back to the professional aspect of it the model really is about uh, working from here but also being in the country 
every other month, every third month. Okay. Right. So so far, I've been to India twice, and there are at least two more trips, if not more, planned for the the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. Right. So there is an element of being on the ground and being live with uh with founders, which is quite important. Mm-hmm. We are recruiting for people who will be who will represent us on the ground. So we're building mm-hmm. out a small team in India. Uh, so we'll have people uh, boots on the ground, so as to say, uh, very very soon. Yeah. Um. So so there's an aspect of being live, which is quite important and quite central because this at the end of the day is not just a trust business, but also is a individual assessment business. Mm-hmm. And so being in the same room uh, at the same table is quite important. But at the same time, I want to stress that being away from the market is also very useful, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there is value like in US also, we don't sit in San Francisco. That's not our main office. Yeah. Our main office is in Washington, DC, right? right? And being away from the noise, <laughs> yeah, away from the market lets you focus. Yeah, right. It helps you think think about things dispassionately, um, and therefore disregard things that you think are uh, are incidental, right. uh, rather than uh, and focus on things that you think are more permanent. Mm. Um, and I can point to a number of uh, themes in the kind of our investments over the last few years when we could have very easily been swept away by the momentum. Had we been in the market, you talked about a lot of B2B companies uh, that had come up and have not really grown as fast as they have. A lot of them came to us for investment, right? And if you remember when these companies were uh, uh, raising the financing, they were in vogue, right? Everyone wanted to, the people are kind of falling over the, uh, over the yeah. to get investment into, into these companies. But we did not get caught, caught up in that rush because we were we could maintain that distance. Right. So I think being an investor, it definitely has an advantage in being away from the market. Yeah. But that's not to discount that you should visit the market very often. You should have a presence. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that's a fantastic point that you make because sometimes you could be a frog in a well in a small, you can live in that small bubble. And everybody that you meet or everybody gives you a certain narrative. And when markets are hot, and it's a particular narrative that being pushed. And maybe even though you try to be as unbiased as possible, at some point that seeps through. And mm. subconsciously, that might enter your um, investment styles as well. And perhaps that also helps being away a little bit away from the market, but keeping pulse on the ground and learning more about it from a distance might give you that uh, little bit of clarity that sometimes might be required to make some investments. Yeah, um, and Akash, like with the combination, like after having after recruiting a local team, I think the hope is that we'll hit best of the both worlds. Right. That we'll have someone on ground to have a presence, uh, yeah. but then still be able to maintain distance from a decision-making perspective. Right. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation, Sandeep. I learned a lot about your own personal experience, both from an operating point of view, and I uh, can see a lot of your operator experience now being trickled down into, into venture and how you, are, how you think, uh, especially from an investment point of view, because I don't know if you realize this, but I noticed that most of your investing insights and knowledge that you shared over the last one hour has been from a very operator point of view as well. So which you don't yeah, get to hear yeah. a lot from a lot of VCs that you end up speaking with, not to discount the work that they do, but having that operator experience definitely also positions you better to work with uh, operators who are, who might be selective, maybe not in this market, uh, but in some of the other markets where, you know, it's, it's, they have the opportunity to choose um, which VCs that they want to work with. They definitely have some of the best ones that they want to surround themselves. I'm sure QAD pops up as one of them as well. That's the hope. But, um, I'm happy that you enjoyed the conversation. And as I said, we're big fans of your work. So keep up the good work. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure again. And I'm looking forward to staying in touch. And hopefully we can bring you back a year from now 
to talk about what the market looks like maybe in 2023 and hopefully some of it is settled or it's not gotten worse and yeah. uh, we'll have some other insights from some of your portfolio uh, over the course of the next 12 months or so fantastic look over to it well that brings us to the end of yet another amazing episode here on the dcvc podcast thank you so much sandeep for your wonderful insights and if you're a listener who's been with us for a long time here on the show one of the things that you'll notice is that today the operator experience that a venture capitalist brings to the table is extremely invaluable if you're a founder and you're trying to choose between a couple of investors that you want to bring onto the cap table with almost similar fund structures and portfolio support you probably will select an investor who either brings in a lot of money to the table or has that operator experience it almost is like an x factor today for investors out there and many founders today are really keeping that in mind as they're constructing their cap tables tapping into both his investing experience and operating experience sandeep had some great insights to share about the indian fintech landscape and his overall learnings from investing in the asian markets my biggest takeaway was his differentiation between the consumer and enterprise opportunity in india and how both present an equally good opportunity for investors to be tapping into simply because the nascency of it in the country and more importantly the potential that both give for investors as well as operators building in the space well if you're like me and you enjoyed that episode please go ahead and rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform it really helps others discover the show and more importantly it keeps you updated about all of our future episode releases and in the coming few weeks i've really built a good pipeline of investors that you would be extremely delighted to hear from so i'll see you next week on the podcast and until then stay safe everybody and continue to keep hustling